If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're going to look at Psalm 59 today, Psalm 59. That's page 477 in the, uh, in the pew Bibles there. Um, if you are in need of a Bible, and if you look in front of you, we have those, those white paperback Bibles there in the pews. If you, if you are in need of a Bible, those are our gift to you. Please take one. We, we value God's Word um, highly here, and we want you to have access to it wherever you are, and so please take one of those if you need one. Last month, on November 13th, a series of six separate terrorist attacks took place in Paris, France. There were four suicide bombs and four mass shootings at restaurants, cafes, and a concert venue. This resulted in the deaths of 130 people. Two weeks later, on November 27th, a man named Robert Dean shot and killed one police officer and two civilians at a Planned Parenthood clinic in Colorado Springs. Five days later, on December 2nd, Saeed Farouk and Tashfin Malik, a married couple, shot and killed 14 people and injured 21 more in San Bernardino, California. They entered a public facility and murdered helpless people during a holiday work party. Two days later... December 4th, 16 people were killed by a bombing at a nightclub after a dispute broke out in Cairo, Egypt. It doesn't seem to be an act of terrorism, just bad tempers. And just yesterday, 27 more people were killed in Chad by three female suicide bombers from the group called Boko Haram. This is a radical Islamic group that captures innocent girls to be sold into sex slavery or to be used for such purposes as this. Now, of course, if we were to go back in time beyond just two months ago, the list would go on and on. There were even similar high-risk events that took place in our own community this past week that resulted in the suicide of one young man. It seems like these kinds of events are becoming more common. I don't know if that's actually the case or not, but it definitely seems that way. So what do we do as Christians when we hear about this wickedness? How should we respond to such a disregard or hatred of human life? Today we're going to look at what's called an imprecatory psalm. The word imprecation means to utter a curse or judgment upon someone. There are a handful of imprecatory psalms in the Bible and several more psalms that contain imprecations. These psalms can be confusing to us because of the strong language they use in asking God to judge the wicked, to destroy His enemies, to execute His wrath against those that fight against His people. This kind of language, it seems out of step with the New Testament teachings of Jesus. But today, my hope is that we will see that there is a purpose to these imprecatory psalms. They are as much God's Word as any other Scripture. And as we work our way through Psalm 59, my prayer is that we would see that the wickedness of man never nullifies the faithfulness of God. The wickedness of man never nullifies the faithfulness of God. So let's read Psalm 59. To the choir master... According to Do Not Destroy, a mictum of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for me. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine. They run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. 
O oh, my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O oh Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But... I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. Now, as I said before, What I want us to understand today is that the wickedness of man never nullifies the faithfulness of God. And so we're going to kind of, this psalm has sort of a circular pattern to it. And so we're going to kind of be skipping all over the psalm. But I've kind of narrowed it down to three big ideas that are found, that I think are found in this psalm. And so the first one that we're going to look at is the reality of wickedness on earth. The reality of wickedness on earth. Now, in order for us to understand Psalm 59, we have to consider the situation that David is in. In the introduction to the psalm, in the small print, we see these words, to the choir master. So this is a song. It's meant to be sung. According to do not destroy. We don't really know what that means. Do not destroy was probably the name of a really common song. It would be like, let's sing this song to the tune of the Star-Spangled Banner, right? They're going to sing this song to the tune of Do Not Destroy. A mictum of David. Again, not sure what a mictum is. It's just a kind of song. But then it says this, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. This is referring to the events recorded in 1 Samuel 19. What's happening there is that the Lord has already rejected Saul as king of Israel, and his reign has entered a slow fade. David has been anointed as the next king by the prophet Samuel. So Saul is losing influence, and David is gaining influence in Israel. David has defeated Goliath. We all know that story. One of the biggest military upsets in Israelite history. And he's been put in charge of the Israelite army. And wherever David takes his men, whatever battle he fights, he's successful. And in 1 Samuel 18, we read that as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And this is what they sang. This is what the women sang. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousand, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Then as we read on to chapter 19 in 1 Samuel, we see that Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. It's in reference to those events that David writes Psalm 59. So before we can understand how to apply this psalm to our own situation, we need to understand why it was written in the first place. Let's be very clear about this situation. Real men with real weapons, with real evil motivations, are waiting outside David's house for the primary purpose of murdering him in the morning. It's not just any men. These were men sent to David's house by the king of the nation. You can be sure that if the king wants you dead, he certainly has the power to make it happen. So when David writes this psalm, even though he uses some metaphorical language, the people he's writing about were very real 
and very dangerous. So just put yourself in his shoes for a moment. What if right now there were special forces agents outside this building waiting for us or our children to emerge so that we could be slaughtered? I wonder if we were handed a pen and paper what kind of psalm we might write. But let's work our way through David's response. The first thing I'd like us to see is the reality of wickedness on earth. Now, what kind of people were out to get David? Well, they were the kind of people that prey upon the innocent. Look in verses 3 and 4. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. Awake, come to meet me and see. David had done nothing to deserve this treatment. In fact, when we read the story in 1 Samuel, we see David was only doing what Saul had asked him to do, which was to lead his army and defeat Israel's enemies. David was not out to get Saul. He had pledged his allegiance and support to Saul. He was not trying to usurp Saul's leadership. He had only been successful in doing what he was asked to do. So these threats against his life are not warranted. David was innocent, but this does not matter to Saul or to his men. You see, wicked people are not concerned with the truth. In fact, many times wicked people simply construct their own truth. They believe lies. They fall into deception. They follow their own evil intentions, even if their wickedness tramples over the most innocent and vulnerable. This is why so many innocent and vulnerable people are targeted in our own day. The elderly and people with disabilities targeted for scams by con artists. Young boys and girls targeted for abuse and neglect. And the unborn, perhaps the most vulnerable, are slaughtered by the thousands every day. Those who work evil will always seek to take advantage of the weak and the innocent. So first we see that those who practice wickedness prey upon the innocent, but we also see that they are deceived into thinking they will not be held accountable. Look in verses six and seven. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who, they think, will hear us. These wicked men are likened to dogs, which were some of the most hated and vile animals, according to the Israelites. Dogs were unclean, filthy, disgusting. Dogs are still filthy and disgusting. We don't like to admit that, but they are. Even the cute ones. They have swords in their lips, David says. So even their words are meant to cause violence and pain. They insult David. They ridicule him. Perhaps they tear him down to other people. If they're about to kill him, then certainly they would have no problem speaking about him with the utmost derision and animus. But notice what undergirds their thinking here. Who, they think, will hear us? Who's going to hear us? Why does it matter? They think no one is going to be able to do anything about it. Who will stop us? We have the support of the king, after all. We will not be held accountable. This is the mark of the pride of the wicked. See, when man grows proud, he starts to believe he's invincible. Even though these men probably knew what they were doing was wrong, they were able to justify it because it felt like no one was going to hold them accountable. But we'll see that that was not the case. So, The wicked prey upon the innocent. The wicked think they will not be held accountable. And the wicked have appetites for sin that are never satisfied. Look at verses 14 and 15. Each evening they come back howling like dogs. There's that dogs reference again. And prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. Remember, these men who were out to kill David had been sent there by King Saul. Remember the state of Saul's heart. He was filled with jealousy. 
he could not live his life knowing that David was growing more powerful than him. His concern was not for the welfare of the nation. It was only for his own fame, his own power, and his own reputation. He was already the king of Israel, but that was not enough. He wanted the glory that David had taken from him. He wanted those girls to sing about him killing the ten thousands. It's not enough for them to sing about me killing thousands. I want the ten thousands. Saul's appetite for self-glory was ever-increasing. It could never be stopped. It led him to attempt to murder David, who, by the way, was one of his closest helpers and who lived in his palace. He was his top military and most successful military commander. He was the one anointed by God to rule after him, and he was his own son's best friend. That's what jealousy does. That's what envy does. It blinds us so that we make ridiculous decisions like this. See, these are characteristics of those who have given full vent to their wickedness. They prey upon the innocent. They think they will not be held accountable, and their appetite for sin is never satisfied. Now, where do we see this kind of wickedness in our own day? Well, We've seen it several times in the past couple months, the cases I mentioned. Men and women who have given full vent to their wickedness. They prey upon the innocent. They've spent months, even years, planning out their attacks because they thought no one would hear them or hold them accountable, and their appetite for death and destruction was so great they they would only be satisfied by killing as many people as they possibly could. This is the world we live in. And by the way, this has always been the case in the world. People like this are real. Some of them, perhaps, live in this very town. Now, the point of me saying that is not to scare people or to fear monger. I'm just trying to take seriously the reality of the wickedness that exists in the world. As we all know, this kind of evil is not something of a bygone age, something that only took place in ancient times when people were uneducated savages. No, this kind of evil, as we know, still happens in our own day. But what do we do? Right? That's the question. What do we do? How should we respond to these things? Do we take up arms and hunt these people down? And kill them before they kill us? Do we lock ourselves and our kids up in our homes and never come out? Do we build fences and gates around our homes and never let anyone in or out? Do we live in constant fear? Let's see how David responds. We see that the prayer of the righteous is for deliverance. The prayer of the righteous is for deliverance. Look in verses 1 and 2. David calls upon God for deliverance. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. David makes four requests. Deliver me. Protect me. Deliver me. Save me. Now, it would be easy to simply tell you to say, just, just say what David says, right? When you see stuff like this, just say, Lord, deliver me. Lord, rescue me. And that's fine, but it's not the words that are the most important thing, I don't think. It's what's behind these words that matters. What kind of view must David have of God for him to be praying this way? He must be absolutely certain that God is powerful enough to do this. You see, David saw his circumstances not as something outside of God's sovereign control, but as something that was within God's power to stop. David knew the character of God. He had read the Torah. He had meditated on God's law. He had studied theology, and he knew and had experienced God's power in his life already. He was calling upon the only person who had the power to deliver him. We will not call upon God 
if we don't believe he is powerful enough to help us. I wonder, when you look at the evil in the world, do you feel hopeless and helpless? Is our view of God so small that we really can't see how God could still be ruling the universe? What circumstances are you facing today that's causing you to question God's power or God's love or God's provision for you? You see, church, nothing takes God by surprise. Nothing. Nothing happens outside of His perfect knowledge. There is nothing that happens in the world that He did not know about 10,000, 10 million years ago. There is no wicked action that he has not purposed for his own glory. I don't know how I don't know how I can live life not believing that. I don't know how we can watch the news without believing this. When I think about the unbelieving world and the way that they view the world when tragedy like this happens, without a big view, without a big vision of God's power and His sovereignty over all things, including wickedness, what hope is there? With the military? I love the military, don't get me wrong, but can't solve these problems. Police, laws, government... If we're not hoping in God, there is no hope. You see, God rules over the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. Nothing takes Him by surprise. He is on the throne. So when David calls upon God for deliverance, this is his view. God, you're on the throne. You have to act. You have to deliver. You have to save. No one else can. But we also see that David asks God to punish these evildoers. Look with me in verse 5. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Skip down to verse 11. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield, for the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips. Let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. So let's not make any mistakes here. David knowingly calls for the destruction of the wicked. We cannot gloss over that. This is where the label imprecatory psalm comes from. He asks God to spare none of them, but get rid of them all. And then in verse 11, he seems to backtrack a little bit when he says, Kill them not, lest my people forget. I think what he's saying, in other words, he just doesn't want them to disappear too quickly. Don't kill them too quickly, because if they disappear too quickly, the nation of Israel might forget God's deliverance too soon. So, instead, cause them to totter. Make a spectacle of them, so that everyone can see their foolishness. Make a mockery of their wickedness. Turn their own lies and cursing back upon them. But notice the statement in verse 13. That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. This is a very important part of David's prayer. We don't want to miss this. His concern is not for his own life, but for the glory of God. As he prays for the wicked to be destroyed, he does so from a heart that is passionate about God's glory being spread across the world. He knows that if he is killed, if David is killed, 
God's promise to make him king would not be fulfilled, right? God has promised him that he would be king. If he dies, God is a liar. He knows God must keep his promise. Therefore, when he prays for deliverance, he is also praying that the world would know that God is in charge and that God keeps his promises. See, these men think they are in charge. They think they can stop God's plan. But Lord, please show them who really has all the power. Glorify your name. Make yourself look good in this situation. That's what David is saying. This is where we often go wrong. See, many times after we identify this, this kind of extreme wickedness, you know, we see it on TV or, or something like that, um, we have a strong desire to see things made right. That's a good thing. But unfortunately, we've seen too many Rambo movies. We want to be the hero, right? We want to be the ones to put an end to this violence, We want to be the ones in charge so that we can drop the bombs or send in the armies. But what we're really wanting in those moments is glory for ourselves. We are not really concerned about the glory of God being put on display in the world. David's concern here is that God's power and God's judgment would be put on display so that the world would know that he is the one true God. He's not seeking his own glory. He's asking God to destroy his enemies. He is not seeking to do it himself. This is a subtle but important distinction here. We'll talk more about that at the end. And we also have to remember that this psalm was written during Old Testament times when Israel lived under a theocracy, okay? God was their king. They were God's chosen people. God's throne was literally on earth, in the temple. So when David pleads with God to destroy his enemies, he's praying that God would vindicate his own name by showing himself to be the one true king on earth. Now, we don't live in a theocracy anymore. So we don't pray exactly how David prayed in the Old Testament, right? We don't pray that God would establish a a nation, an earthly nation here. We don't pray that the United States would destroy all the other enemies as if we are acting on God's behalf or something like that, right? But we can still pray for deliverance. The fact is, wickedness in all its forms is never God's original design for His creation. So we can always pray for deliverance from it. So we pray that God would deliver us from evil devices of men and demonic forces. We pray that He would deliver us from sickness and disease. We pray most of all that He would deliver us and all people from unbelief and grant us repentance and faith in Christ. You see, calling out for deliverance is good. It's the natural response of God's people because we know that God is powerful enough to deliver us and He cares for us. So we see that our response in times of distress is to call upon God for deliverance. This is good and it's right for us to do. But the last question I want to ask is, what hope do we have that God will answer. As we pray, what do we hope for? Well, the hope of the righteous is the faithfulness of God. Our hope is in the faithfulness of God. Look with me in verses 8 through 10. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God and his steadfast love will meet me. My God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. God laughs at people who think they have outsmarted him. He mocks them. No one has the upper hand with God. 
David calls God his strength and fortress. Again, this is because he knows the character of God. His heart finds contentment and rest in God, even when his life, his actual physical life, hangs in the balance. Now, let this be an encouragement to those of you who struggle with doubt or worry. It is possible to find hope and rest in God's provision no matter what your circumstances are. God has given us His Spirit, the Comforter, to be with us, and He will never leave us. He has given us His great and precious promises that we might cling to Him even when everything in our world seems uncertain. Watch for Him today. I pray that your strength and your fortress would be God. David knew that God would deliver him because he had already promised to make him king. That phrase, steadfast love, there in verse 10, is a very important phrase in the Old Testament. It's a reference to God's covenant faithfulness in keeping his promises to his people. David knew that God would not fail or falter in keeping his promises. He would be victorious over these enemies because God had promised him such. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, that's great for David. Great. He knew God would preserve his life because God had promised him that. What about my life? Why, why can't I have the same promise of physical protection? And the fact is, God hasn't given us that same promise, that he will physically protect us God hasn't promised, as far as I know, anybody that you'll live to see tomorrow. But we have to remember that God made that promise to David for a specific time in order to bring about his saving purposes through the nation of Israel. But also remember that David is not still alive. David's very much dead. He did die eventually. It just wasn't his time to die yet in the story. God made that promise to him, which is why he can say he is confident in God's physical protection. But what about us? What promises has God made to us? You see, David wants us to know that God is a God who keeps his promises, his steadfast love. Well, in Genesis... After Adam and Eve sinned, brought sin into the world, God promised to crush the head of the serpent. In Deuteronomy, God promised to send a prophet like Moses to lead his people. In the prophets, he promised that the Messiah would be born to a virgin, that he would rule the nations, that he would suffer and die so that his people would be healed. And also in the prophets, he promised to, fill, to fill his people with the Holy Spirit, to write his law on their hearts, to establish a new community, a new kingdom with a new king. But that's not all. God has promised us physical deliverance. He has. 1 Corinthians 15 is clear that there will one day be a resurrection of the dead. We will be given new bodies. We will live with Christ on the new earth. There will be a new physical existence. No matter what kind of physical suffering or physical death we might die in this life, we know that we will also triumph over wickedness. How? Through the power of the resurrection. In all of these promises and Hundreds more throughout Scripture have found their fulfillment in Christ. They are guaranteed to us by the Holy Spirit. Just like David, we can rest assured that God will keep His promises to His people. His steadfast love, His covenant love for you is marked primarily by his covenant faithfulness to act according to his own word. God cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. He who promised is faithful, and God will do it. 
And this is why David can end his psalm with verses 16 and 17. I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. So what is the effect in our hearts when we remember God's faithfulness? It's worship. We sing. We overflow with thanksgiving and love and awe and a heartfelt desire to proclaim the good news of the promises of God. We're going to do that in a little bit. But first, how should we think about Psalm 59? What do we do with these imprecatory psalms? So I'm going to kind of outline just several different application points to help us not only understand but apply the imprecatory psalms. First, when we read the imprecatory psalms, they remind us of the seriousness of sin and the reality of divine judgment. They remind us of the seriousness of sin and the reality of divine judgment. We must identify wickedness for what it is. It's sin against a holy God and His good designs. Now, we've done a lot of pointing the finger today, right? A lot of mass shooters and suicide bombers and terrorists and things like that. But let's take a moment and let's think about ourselves. We have to deal with our own wickedness first. How does your wickedness cause you to prey upon the innocent? Because see, just because we see on the news men and women who have given full vent to their wickedness, that doesn't excuse us. We have the same seed of sin in our own hearts. How does your wickedness cause you to prey on the innocent? Well, let's look at two very common issues, even in our own church. Men, when you view pornography, do you realize you are doing exactly what Saul's men were doing to David? You are lying in wait. You are sneaking around, waiting for just the right time to open that computer, to pull out that phone, so that you can prey upon the souls of those women on your screen. You are treating them as though they are just bodies. Bodies to be watched and enjoyed for your viewing pleasure. God's design for sex and intimacy is rejected and is traded for a cheap, momentary substitute. You are not satisfied with what God has given you. You're preying upon the innocent. Women, what about when you compare yourself to others? Do you realize you're guilty of the same envy that Saul was guilty of? When you desire to have that husband or to have those obedient children or when you read that status update from that same mom who seems to have everything together and you want that life, you are pitting yourself against her. You are not for her. You are not concerned for her soul. You don't want what is best for her. You want her to fail because you want what she has. You are not satisfied with what God has given you. You're preying upon the innocent. Those are just two examples. And how have we convinced ourselves that we will not be held accountable for these things? Remember, the wicked think they will not be held accountable. No one sees what I'm doing, right? Alone in my room. No one sees these thoughts that I have. I'm not hurting anyone by indulging these secret desires. Perhaps no one knows about these sins we have treasured up in our hearts, but God knows. He will hold us accountable. 
How has your sin ceased to be satisfied? Do you find that when you give your sin an inch, it quickly seeks to take a mile? We deceive ourselves into thinking that we will only go so far in our wickedness when far too quickly we have progressed to the next step. There is no sin but that sin which seeks to multiply itself. It works its way deeper and deeper into our hearts. It sears our conscience so that the guilt and conviction you once experienced fades away. And make no mistake, it will destroy your soul. So when we read the imprecatory Psalms, we are reminded that God's judgment, first of all, falls on us. It's on you. We are all rebels against God's holiness. We have all sinned. Were it not for the power of God's restraining hand, we would all give full vent to our sinful desires. We deserve to be destroyed. We deserve to be punished. We deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. It's not for those mass shooters and terrorists out there. It's for us. We deserve it. And our only hope is Jesus. See, the way out of God's judgment is not to just do better. It's to plead with God for mercy. It's to cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus who gave his life for our sin. He he bore the judgment of God. He bore it for us. We read the imprecatory Psalms, we see what Christ bore for us. The wrath of God fell on him so that we can now walk in newness of life. If you're here today, you have not turned from your sin and committed your life to Christ, we invite you to do that. Don't let another day go by suffering under the judgment of God. Confess your sin to God today. Confess your sin to your brother or your sister in Christ here today. Commit your ways to the Lord to walk in faithful obedience to his designs. So first, when we read the imprecatory Psalms, we find ourselves. We're guilty. We're under God's wrath. And it pushes us back to the gospel. Thank God for the imprecatory Psalms. Next, word of application. What do we do with the imprecatory Psalms? We pray for deliverance from the wicked. We do. This is good. This is the right thing to do. There's two primary ways God delivers us from the wicked. First, He stops wicked with the sword of the state. This is Romans 13, clearly teaches that one of the primary ways God restrains and punishes evil is through the force of the government. Now, our government does this in all kinds of ways. Taxes people so that they do the right thing. Capital punishment, fines, jail, prison, police, arresting, you know, all of these things. This is how God, one way that God restrains evil These are all good and right ways that God uses to thwart the plans of those that seek to harm other people. So we pray. We pray that God would do this. This is not a bad thing. Now, we are not called to take up arms as individual Christians against wicked people. The church cannot fulfill the role of the state. This is important. We will never set up, hear me on this, we will never set up the Redeemer Church militia, okay? We're not going to start a militia here at Redeemer Church, nor will we as individual Christians seek vigilante justice against our neighbors. We are not called to seek people out and hunt them down. Instead, as Christians, We are called to pray for our leaders and those in those positions 
to establish laws, set up systems of protection that benefit all people in society and that allow for the most human flourishing. So we pray that God would stop the plans of the wicked through the punitive systems He has established. That's a good and right thing. We should pray for that. We should pray that these these shooters and these terrorists will be brought to justice in an earthly sense. We should. But there is a better way. It's a way that I hope is the desire of every Christ follower. The second way that we pray for deliverance from the wicked is that we hope and we pray that evil would be stopped by the power of the gospel. You see, the state, just as the church is not called to to fulfill the role of the state, the state is not called to fulfill the role of the church. The state is not called to proclaim the gospel to the lost, nor should we expect it to. God triumphs over wickedness ultimately through the proclamation of the gospel. As the church is filled with the Holy Spirit, God's people take His message of hope to those who are bound by the chains of wickedness, and one by one, God begins to pull those whom He has chosen out of their sin and rebellion. This is why we pray Uh, This is what we pray for every Sunday during the missional prayer time. We watched a video. The Syrian refugees, all of them probably Muslim, many of them coming from countries, regions that promote terrorism. But what, what do we have there? A missionary. Is he carrying around a machine gun? trying to hunt down these terrorists before they get to America or whatever? No. He's armed with the power of the gospel. He proclaims God's word. He seeks to bring about change and, and, and transformation through the power of the Holy Spirit by the proclamation of the gospel. This is how wickedness is stopped. This is why we come together week after week and remind ourselves of the gospel. This is why we are still here on earth. Jesus came so that he might reverse the curse of Adam. He is making all things new, one soul at a time, as the message of his life, death, and resurrection is proclaimed throughout the world. This is why Jesus calls us to love our enemies through kindness, service, and seeking their good in all things. Jesus' words, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So we pray that wickedness will be stopped, that it will be stopped by the power of the state. There would be no more innocent loss of life. But we also pray fervently that the gospel would go forth in power, transforming sinners' dead hearts, causing them to walk in newness of life so that Muslim terrorists would become Christ followers, worshipers of God. That is the power of the gospel. That's what we are after. Third, so if you remember, first one, um, what was the first one? Oh, our own, the imprecatory psalms help us remember our own wickedness. We point the finger at us first. Second, we pray that wickedness would be stopped. And third, we live with hope in the midst of a wicked generation. This is what we do with the imprecatory psalms. This is what they help us do. We live with hope in the midst of of a wicked generation. We can hope in a God who is sovereign. Nothing escapes his notice. We can hope in a God who is working all things for our good. 
We don't understand it all. We don't have all the information. We can't see the big picture. We just see these news stories. But we know that God has promised us to work all things for our good and for his glory. We can hope in a God who is redeeming souls and establishing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is his promise to us. This is what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That will be accomplished. That is being accomplished. We can believe it. We can hope in it. And last, we can hope in a God who will raise the dead. He will finally defeat all wickedness at the coming of Christ, and we will share in his victory over sin and death. That's our hope. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to be afraid of what might be out there because we know that no matter what happens, we will be with Christ. He will raise us all. We do not have to be afraid because the wickedness of man never nullifies the faithfulness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. You have given us all that we need for life and godliness in your word. God, I pray that we would be a church full of people who are fully confident, fully assured of your great and precious promises. I pray that we would not flounder, we would not be like waves tossed to and fro, but God, we would be secure. We would understand, we would know your word, we would memorize it, we would hide it in our hearts so that we might not sin against you because we believe your word, we believe your promises to bless us, to care for us, to protect us and preserve us. We believe these things, we really do. We want others to believe them too. Father, fill us with your spirit today. I pray now, Lord, as we observe the Lord's Supper that we would be reminded again of the gospel, the body and blood that was shed and broken for us. May you be honored in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.